The Tom Woods Show, episode 1036. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. BuzzFeed says, if you've never heard of Ebates before, get ready to make some easy money. You're already shopping online anyway at a variety of merchants. Might as well earn some cash back. Check out Ebates, and if you refer just two people, you get 50 smackers. Check it out at tomwoods.com slash Ebates. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here talking to Mark Skousen today. He is the author of a textbook that is now in its fifth edition called Economic Logic, but we know Mark Skousen for a lot more than that. Mark is the author of over two dozen books. In fact, he's an economist, an investment analyst, a newsletter editor, and a college professor. Since 1980, he's been editor-in-chief of the financial newsletter Forecasts and Strategies, and of course, he is the producer of Freedom Fest, which is an annual event in Las Vegas featuring a great many libertarian and conservative luminaries. He also served for two years as president of the Foundation for Economic Education. And I want to talk to him today about his textbook, Economic Logic, and in particular, I want to focus in on how understanding the way the economy works from an Austrian perspective really helps you to see things that other people don't see or can't see, that there are competing models of understanding how we should conceive of the economy and what's happening in it that get things all wrong, like consumption is 70% of the economy. This is all crazy nonsense. And Figures like gross output and the sorts of things that Mark and other Austrians talk about help us avoid some of these common errors, which lead to very, very bad policy mistakes. Mark, welcome back. Well, glad to be on. I'm right now at the Lincoln Center for the Barron's Investment Conference, which is an annual event that I always attend. But uh, delight to take a break and talk to you about economics. I really appreciate that. Well, I'm glad to see that your textbook is now in a fifth edition with all the data updated and fresh. It's called Economic Logic, as I was just telling folks. And I, we definitely want to talk about some stuff that's in there. I want to start off with a topic that is in the news and, of course, is the kind of topic you'd see covered in your textbook. But that is the the tax reform proposal that we are hearing about coming out of Washington and it seems to be, or at least for a, quite a long time so far, it's been evolving uh, in terms of the number of brackets involved and the deductions that will be allowed or not allowed. What's your overall impression of it? Well, the more I look into it, the more disappointed I am because there's no simplification here. Uh, the, the, the rules and regulations, I mean, this is going to be a thousand page tax reform bill. It's uh, not really going to reduce the... Uh, tax brackets. I mean, maybe they will to some extent, but even the Senate is adding new ones and they're fearful of, uh, uh, of not taxing the rich enough. And so they're thinking of adding a new tax bracket for the wealthy. They're talking about removing part of the deductions. Uh, there's nothing there that would fit Steve Forbes' definition of a postcard tax return, which is what we really need to be headed towards. So I think it's pretty disappointing. The other thing that's disappointing is from an investor point of view, when we worked long and hard to get the cost of long-term capital gains down to 15% under George W. Bush, and now it's up to 23, almost 24%. 
there's no indication that there's any kind of tax relief, particularly in the area of capital gains and interest and dividends, uh, which I think is really important. So there's a lot of things that I don't really like about it. But from from the stock market point of view, uh, everybody's hoping for tax reform, some kind of tax relief. Uh, and that's why the stock market has performed as well as it has. So you take that away. If they, they don't get tax reform, if they don't replace Obamacare, uh, then, then Trump is going to be viewed as a, as a failure. And I think there's a real concern now that uh, the Republicans will lose the House next year and uh, the Democrats taking over the House will immediately try to impeach Trump. And it's just going to be a mess. Yeah, I've got an ongoing bet with David Stockman, who does not think Trump is going to make it through 2018. And I just feel like Trump is such a great fundraiser for the Democrats, or at least potentially he is. <laughs> I don't think they'd want to get rid of him. You know, he's the biggest punching bag they've ever had. So they may talk a good game about that, but I'm not sure they'd actually go through it. Anyway, who knows? That's an honorable disagreement among among gentlemen. Um, on, just one other thing on tax reform. You, you hit on a phrase, tax r- relief that I think is significant because t- you can have tax reform without having tax relief. You can just shuffle the t- taxes around and where they get shuffled and which deductions are preserved or expanded or eliminated depends on which side has the best lobbyists and, and uh, lawyers on its side. And I'm afraid that's what this is turning into. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. It's, it's, it's tax reform. It's not tax relief. Now, you, you were talking about, uh, you, you mentioned the stock market. Now, in your book, one of the nice things about your book is that, first of all, it's written for the average American of reasonable intelligence. It's not for people who – you don't have to have a huge background uh, in economics. This is – you'll get the background in economics by reading the textbook. And you have some good material on financial markets, which, of course, you know about as a newsletter publisher for many years. Uh, you explain the terminology that I bet a lot of people – don't know, wish they did, and they don't know how to find out. Stocks, bonds, everything's covered in here. You address the question, is the stock market really just a giant casino, as we often hear it said? How do you answer that claim? You're right. I do have a whole chapter on financing capitalism, the stock and bond markets. And I think this is an area that has had been short-shrifted by economists, very few textbooks, uh, you know, they hide it in the appendix. I bring it out front, mainly from my own experience. I wrote this entire textbook, Economic Logic, based on uh, my own experiences. And that's why I start with a PL income statement instead of supply and demand. I do cover supply and demand, but it doesn't happen until chapter six. So I'm the only textbook out there that starts with something that people understand. And that is an income statement, a profit and loss statement. I think that's chapter two. And um, then uh, I talk about uh, the factors of production, land, labor, and capital. But when I come to capital, then I have a whole chapter on the stock and bond markets. And I introduce it by, uh, when I teach this course, I hold up to the students a lottery ticket and a stock certificate. And I ask the students, are these the same or are they different? And it develops a wonderful debate among the students because some say it's a lottery ticket, that, that it's like Las Vegas, it's, Wall Street is like Las Vegas. And I even show them a book of that title, Wall Street, the other Vegas. 
And uh, then uh, I hold up the stock certificate and I quote Peter Lynch, uh, the famous uh, economist or the famous financial advisor and money manager, the Magellan Fund at Fidelity, who said, never forget that a stock certificate is part ownership in a business. And so we really get into the fundamentals of the the differences between you can use the stock market as a speculative gambling vehicle. And a lot of people do that sort of thing. But I think if people take a long-term view and see the stock market as a ways to raise capital and to be invested in entrepreneurship and new companies and new technologies, it's, it's really, you know, I come, I come across as uh, very much a um, pro investor, uh, encouraging people to participate in the, uh, I, I, you know, I generally have a rather positive view about Wall Street in that, in that chapter. Now, I, when I had you on, I've had you on a couple of times, uh, but once it was to talk about your opinions on investing and your view that sometimes Austrians get this strategically wrong because they're, I, I think your view more or less was they're always holding back on, on, getting into the stock market because they feel like uh, the bust is always coming. And and while they're waiting for the bust to come, they're missing out on huge potential gains. Am I summarizing that roughly correctly? Yes, definitely. And I have a chapter on the business cycle in addition to the stock market. But in the stock market chapter, I reproduce uh, Jeremy Siegel's uh, uh, chart uh, uh, for long-term uh, stocks for the long-term. And in it, it shows that the stock market has had a tremendous upside. Now, this is the United States only. And I make a very big point about this, that the only reason the U.S. stock market has a long-term upward trend that, that uh, defies the, uh, the dooms, doom and gloomers is because we're essentially still a free market capitalist system that has the rule of law. And so other, I do point out that other countries have not had the same performance as America. I mean, Japan is still not recovered from its 1990 top. And here it is 30 some years later. Uh, you have uh, Argentina that closed the Bolsa for many years. Uh, Israel. I mean, there's lots of countries where things went badly for long periods of time. So I don't want to dismiss the Austrians who warn us constantly about the coming bear market, but it doesn't seem to work in the United States. And my main point is the, for some reason, the Austrians have focused on the, on the bust, on the crisis, on the crash, the coming crash based on uh, both Hayek and, uh, and, and Mises, primarily Mises, who's always famous for someday there's going to be a great crash uh, pointing to the credit onstalt and, and predicting the 1929-1932 debacle and, and never recovered from that. They've always been bearish uh, since then. Um, and so I said, look, in, in my chapter on the Austrian theory of the business cycle, which I cover very, very uh, precisely, uh, I said, you know, there's a boom side to the Austrian theory of the business cycle. Let us not forget that the stocks go up during the boom phase so yes, it may be artificial, but it can last for years. So why be, uh, why not play both sides of the market and use some protective stops 
or maybe the inverted yield curve, which I think is an Austrian way of anticipating uh, that the, the, the boom is going to turn into a bust. So that's how I handle that in, in the latter chapters of economic logic. So let's then go to your discussion of so-called gross output as a as a metric for getting the a fuller picture of what's going on in the economy than the traditional national income accounting figures. This gross output figure is well first of all explain what it is and why does it matter because there are economists who think it doesn't matter for some reason. Yeah, uh so this is where I'm kind of promoting my textbook as, as squaring the Mises circle, if you will. Uh, it's introducing an Austrian concept, a supply-side Austrian concept, into national income accounting and into the textbooks. And by the way, gross output, since it's been adopted by the federal government, is, and I know this will be a shock to a lot of your listeners, uh, it actually renewed my faith in the federal government that they might actually be able to do something right and um, so the BEA, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, since April 2014, have uh, been uh, uh, releasing or publishing quarterly gross output data. What is gross output? It's high X triangle. It's a measure of high X triangle. And uh, this should be uh, uh, really happy news. This is a triumph of Austrian economics. This is the biggest triumph in Austrian economics since Hayek won the Nobel Prize in 1974, and I think it's it's unfortunate, and I don't understand it, why Austrians, uh, Austrian economists at GMU and elsewhere have um, are, are are reluctant to uh, to see this great breakthrough. This should be a wonderful celebration that the government is is measuring all stages of production. I call it, and this is my background in finance, so it, it came to me as kind of an epiphany that uh, this is a top line in national income accounting. Uh, we always had the bottom line in national income accounting of GDP, which is a measure of uh, finished or final goods and services, but we never had a top line like you have in financial statements. You know, every quarter publicly traded firms come out with their financial statements and they have a top line, which is sales and a bottom line, which is earnings or profits. So my argument is that with GO, economists have finally caught up to the accounting and finance uh, departments and uh, now have a top line and bottom line in accounting. And, and gross output as a measure of high X triangle, first of all, shows you how that business is uh, is so much more important than we realize. And by business, I put in that category savings, investment, capital investment, uh, entrepreneurship, innovation, technology, all the aspects of supply-side economics is in the supply chain. And GDP, a lot of people don't realize this, that GDP leaves out the supply chain. All the B2B spending that brings the production process to the final product is left out. Now, of course, economists uh, are, <laughs> Peter Drucker said, uh, are slow learners. A lot of uh, economists are slow learners and they, they just call it double counting because GDP is, you know, you don't, wanna, you don't wanna measure the same commodity used over and over again. 
But in the supply chain, double counting counts. In fact, it's absolutely essential to move the production process from the earliest stage to the finish stage. And I use a four-stage model of the economy, a kind of a universal four-stage model of the economy that people can see in the textbook. So it's resources, production, distribution, and final output. And so gross output uh, is uh, an extremely important measure because the reason it's not double, just double counting is because you're moving as you're, you're moving the supply chain along the supply chain and the, the product is changing. So the, the coffee bean is getting roasted and then it's being crushed and then it's packaged and then there's location economics. The wholesaler distributes and moves it over to the retail. And business has to spend uh, their, you know, business cannot run on, on value added only, uh, which is what GDP is. Uh, business requires you to raise capital to pay for all your expenditures, uh, including the supply chain, in, including the, 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 um, the products that you need to purchase uh, to move it along the production process. So, I know that's kind of a lengthy uh, response uh, to understanding what gross output is, but it's it's a major breakthrough. I call it a paradigm shift in macroeconomics. And I just finished reading Thomas Kuhn's famous uh, book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And Tom, I don't know if you've read that or not, but it is so applicable to all disciplines uh, where there's the theory, the model that you currently have, the macro model that we currently have of GDP it does not, uh, you know, it's, it creates a lot of problems. There's a lot of problems associated with it. So then someone comes along and develops a new way of looking at things. It's held with great skepticism. I mean, Tom, I can't tell you how many, how many papers I have been, my papers on gross output have been rejected. I mean, I've had some published, but there's been a, a lot of skepticism in the profession. And it's, uh, I would say I'm finally making some progress since the government's starting to, uh, is, is using the statistic. But we also have five textbooks now, and none of them are Austrian, by the way. But I have five textbooks that have now adopted gross output, and they include Roger Leroy Miller. McConnell Brew and Flynn, Sean Flynn is the principal writer and he's a free market guy. You know, uh, this, you know, Colander, I can't remember all of them that I've got, but there's five textbooks and, uh, but I'm, I'm struggling to have, uh, have the, the other textbooks, uh, take a look at it. They, they just don't see the need for it. Well, can you take a industry people are familiar with and just so just to put some meat on the bones here, give an example of what aspects of that industry, what parts of the process would be left out of the traditional accounting and are included under your gross output. Right. So in a, a micro example would be uh, the production of coffee. And I mentioned that previous. So you have four stages of production to make coffee at Starbucks uh, or at, at whatever other uh, 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 coffee house you have. So you have the coffee beans that are produced by the coffee farmer. 
and that's the resource stage. And then it moves to the stage of, uh, of uh, where the coffee is uh, 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 cooked and burnt and, and, uh, and crushed and uh, made into a, uh, a, pa- a package. So that's the production stage and you add value. Uh, and then it's sold to a wholesaler and the wholesaler transfers that package from the uh, producer over to the uh, final use at Starbucks. And then Starbucks takes that package and turns it into coffee and again, adds value. So what started off as um, uh, a unfinished uh, raw commodity uh, now becomes a consumer product that's added value along the way. And so GDP will measure only the coffee itself, the, the coffee that you drink, the final consumer good. But it will not include any of the measures of all the money, all the capital investment that the coffee farmer, the co- coffee manufacturer, the wholesaler, all of those, what I call the make economy, GDP will only measure the final product that you consume. So when we look at C plus I plus G, this is what consumers, business, and government buys that are finished products. And then it leaves out the supply chain. So the entire supply chain is left out of GDP. And so if you look at high X triangles, what are high X triangles? And he never did try to uh, um, apply it to government statistics that we have today, uh, Hayek's mistake, in my opinion, was that he maintained only a high theory level. And, and so my objective was to take Hayek's original work in prices and production and put some meat and bones on it by describing, and that's what I do in my book, The Structure of Production, which came out in 1990, published by NYU Press, and now is in its third printing with a new introduction. So it's, it's, there's been a lot of advance in high X triangles because it measures the supply chain. And that's why this is such an important breakthrough that all Austrians should be alert to and start doing research and writing on it. We, uh, I should mention also that apparently GO has a lot of predictive power. And in fact, David Ranson who's a chief economist with, um, with HCWE, which is a uh, private uh, consulting firm for Wall Street. Uh, Wall Street. Um, he did some preliminary uh, work and found that uh, the supply chain and gross output uh, acts as very strong predictive power and can predict what GDP will be 12 weeks in advance. So, that's another important reason why uh, GO should be uh, looked at. And, and my textbook, Economic Logic, is the first uh, textbook to fully integrate top line and bottom line accounting, GO with GDP, and make it a complete. This is why I say uh, GO is the missing link in macroeconomics, and it's an Austrian supply side concept. So uh, I, I'm really help, hopeful through your podcast and through others and the reading that they will capture the vision of how important this is to uh, kind of complete the macroeconomic puzzle. And so that's why, again, 
call it uh, squaring uh, Mises uh, circle here is a uh, is what's happening here with this uh, advance. Let's take a bird's eye look at your textbook as a whole. It seems to me to be somewhat eclectic. Is that how you would describe it in terms of the influences that that you bring to bear in your presentation? In other words, it's not a pure Chicago presentation or a pure Austrian presentation. Yeah, in fact, I uh, I dedicate the book in, in initially to both Hayek and, and Friedman. So I try to take the best of both the schools, but I'm also very eclectic like Kenneth Boulding was in believing in uh, you know my background in liberal arts education and in econ- I have a PhD in economics but I'm a pra- I'm an applied economist in finance and business I've run businesses so if I had written this textbook 30 years ago I would not have had the PNL I would not have started with the PNL statement so I start with that uh, the profit and loss statement I have a whole section on the four uh, financial uh, statements, which includes uh, economic value added, EBA that Joel Stern um, discovered. Uh, I, I have uh, influential economists at the end of each chapter. So my first one is Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations. And uh, Ludwig von Mises is uh, the highlighted e- economist in the second chapter. I also have other Austrians like uh, Rothbard, and uh, and Hayek uh, highlighted uh, Schumpeter, of course, uh, and then with the Chicago School, I've added Milton Friedman and George Stigler and Gary Becker and Robert Mundell. Uh, but I've also reached out to people who are uh, fellow travelers, if you will, who did not consider themselves academic economists. So I highlight with Peter Drucker and management. So I have a lot of business. Uh, a lot of my uh, students consider my uh, course kind of a business economics course. Um, and I also have Edward Deming in there, who is famous for his cost controls and efficiency methods. So I highlight Edward Deming, Peter Drucker and, and Deming. And then I also have Mohammed Yunus, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for his microcredit. So I have him juxtaposed with Karl Marx. Uh, I have a whole chapter on Keynes, but Keynes, I, I put Keynes in the chapter on uh, deficit spending and national debt because uh, it, that paradigm shift with Keynes has had some unintended uh, negative consequences when it comes to uh, uh, controlling the budget and the size of government and that sort of thing. Uh, so my basic thesis is a totem pole approach. I don't do left and right. I do up and down. So Adam Smith and the free market economists uh, reign throughout my textbook. But I do have full chapters on Keynes and Marx and the, the enemies of, uh, um, of free market economics. Uh, so it's a full textbook. It, 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 as you say, I think it's written for the layman. A lot of people use it in homeschooling. And in a lot of ways, you can consider it as, uh, as lessons in economics rather than just chapters of a textbook. I hope I can ask you one more thing before letting you go. Yes. Okay. And if, if this is too hard to handle on a podcast, I totally understand. But one of the uh, selling points at the beginning of the book is that you give you provide an alternative to the so-called circular flow diagram of the way the economy works. And that's what most students get in their textbooks. 
What's wrong with that diagram? Well, the problem with the circular flow diagram is that it doesn't show the importance of time. And um, it also, the circular flow diagram also tends to promote the idea that consumer spending, final consumer spending drives the economy rather than consumption driving the circular flow and the economy. You have investment business spending and the factors of production driving the production and consumption of the economy and then consumer spending is used up and depreciates, which is a, a more accurate view. So this um, uh, Ekin, uh, E-K-I-N is the author of this that I reproduced in the chart. It's just a beautiful chart uh, or diagram of what really drives the economy. And by the way, another reason gross output is so beneficial as a true measure of total spending in the economy, it shows that, that business is the biggest sector of the economy and not the consumer. Consumer spending is 70% or two-thirds of uh, GDP, but that's because it only measures final output. And, but as, as you look at gross output, which is $41 trillion dollars, in this last year, uh, business spending is uh, by far the biggest sector of the economy. It's over 60% of gross output. So it's a much more accurate view. So this is another reason why we need to look at GO and, and that new diagram that I have showing investment is what really drives the economy. And of course, I use lots of examples in my classroom and in my textbook. I use Seattle as an example where uh, it's innovating companies that have made Seattle rich, not consumers. Consumers are the, uh, Consumer spending is the effect, not the cause of prosperity. And that's what Say's Law basically says. So I'm a big supporter of Say's Law in my textbook, which has been underplayed. I think we're too much uh, victims of Keynes Law that we say consumer spending drives the economy. And we need to look at Say's Law, which says that business and innovation an entrepreneurship, a word that he popularized, is what drives the economy. Mark, you were telling me there's a way curious people can get this textbook without having to pay textbook prices. And what would that be? That's right. Capital Press, which is part of Regnery, charges $79.95. So it's another one of those high prices. Now, that that's still only half what most textbooks charge these days. But uh, I actually, if they go through my connection which is Ensign Publishing, they can get the book for $39.95 if they're in the U.S. Uh, that includes the shipping cost. So the phone number for that, for Ensign Publishing, to get the, ens- the new edition for $39.95 is 866-254-2057. Um, and uh, so, by the way, if there are any, if you have, Anyone outside the United States, uh, this textbook, uh, I, I shipped one the other day for $57. That's how much the post office charged me to mail the textbook abroad. So you need to add $57 if you're ordering it, even in Canada. Isn't that one of the great tragedies, Tom, that I can mail this book for $3 or $4 to Detroit, from New York to Detroit? To send it to Toronto, just across the border, it's fifty-seven dollars. That's just insane. Well, that first of all, let's 
find the the good news of that is that it's a great big book. <laughs> so I just want people to understand <laughs> they're getting quite a lot of value here. It's over 700, 700 pages. pages. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it has wide margins and it's easy to read. <laughs> right, right, right. It, it it definitely is easy to read. Right. Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah, that that's right. It, it's very, very attractively laid out. Well, Mark, thanks for your time, especially thanks for tearing yourself away from an event uh, you're at. And uh, best of luck with the book. And of course, it's a little bit far off Freedom Fest, but you are the man behind Freedom Fest every July in Las Vegas. So I'll try and get you back on, you know, when we as we get a little bit closer to that. Well, thank you for mentioning Freedom Fest. It'll next year. It'll be uh, July 11th through the 14th. Think 7-Eleven in Vegas, and we're we're working together very closely with the Reason Foundation that's celebrating their 50th anniversary. So they're doing the Reason Media Awards and uh, two breakout uh, special Reason Days there. We're, we'll probably have several thousand people there, and we are trying to get uh, Tom Woods to come out there, and we hope to do that pretty soon. <laughs> well, we will see what uh, what next year brings. But thanks so much for uh, talking to us today. Okay, thank you, Tom. All right, everybody. Before I let you go, the other day I was about to give a talk, and I thought I'm going to promote one of my eBooks. And I know you know Michael Malice likes to make fun of me for my eBooks, but they're free. I give away free books. Well, there's one of them that I think is a lot better than it got credit for, in that. I think a lot more people should be downloading it. It's really good. It's fun. I looked at it. I said, this thing's much better than I remember. And you can get it for free. It's called Sane Space, and the subtitle is Libertarian Dispatches from Bizarro America. And it's just full of my little commentaries on all the crazy insanity that surrounds us, whether it's the campuses or crazy economic misconceptions or, heaven help me, the time I spent at the Disney World Hall of Presidents. That was propaganda from beginning to end, but it's punchy, informative, and fun commentaries by me on all these things. You can read it in no time at all. You know, maybe you're in the bathroom, maybe you're on a flight somewhere. It's a free book, and if you like this show, it's just like the show, except in sort of printed form. How do you get it? Two ways to get it. Go to sanespacebook.com and just scroll to the bottom, click on that button that says you want it. SaneSpaceBook.com, you can download it instantly. You can also get it instantly by texting the word SNOWFLAKE to the number 33444. But whatever you do, if you're enjoying this show, I'm just telling you, go get Sane Space because you're going to like it. And I want you to be happy, right? And I give you good advice. I give you good advice. There's no denying that. So go get Sane Space. Enjoy your weekend. I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.